You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We just, I think, expect our kids to be able to just move into adulthood, right? Like, we, hey, you know, we got you... We got you through high school, and now we're going to send you off to college, and then you're just going to get it. But there's probably so much more to becoming an adult um, than just maturing and just growing older, right? At some point, you know they're not very well prepared. If you've ever dropped your kid off for college, you probably realize, oh, boy, I don't know if I ever taught him to iron. It's one of the benefits of – like in the LDS church, we send our missionaries out and uh, boy, if our kids don't know how to make a meal, to work, to exercise, I mean, it's – you may be creating you may be creating a monster if, if you're not setting your kids up to succeed one way or another. But as Andy got into this idea of uh, just being nice, wouldn't that be one of the most important lessons we could give anybody today, especially to our children, is the idea of feeling um, – some compassion for the people that are around us, feeling a sense of compassion for the people in this world. I find it interesting that um, we're so quick to dismiss people today. We're so quick to just eliminate uh, an entire group of people because of where they were born or how they are born. Um, And it it just seems like why on earth do we need to draw such a small circle (laughs) Why can't we keep the circles bigger and, and why can't we allow you know people to just make mistakes in life? It, being mad about someone else's mistake doesn't in any way, shape, or form actually eliminate their mistake. It just makes it more difficult for people to move on. And as we see it in our political world uh, – Regardless, we can't be bullies. Even if you have the bully pulpit, even if you have the most important position in the world, you 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 still have to use it with some honor, with some respect, don't you? Because if not, what are we becoming? And so I don't know. I, I look at it and I think, what's going on with us that we that we don't get this? Uh, the Dalai Lama has a great quote. He says, "People were created to be loved." Things were created to be used. The reason why the world is in chaos is because things are being loved and people are being used. What do you think of that? Do you think we're spending way too much time loving things, our phones, our apps, our ideas, our positions, our party affiliations, and instead we're just using the people in our life? You know, we like the people in our life as long as they meet our needs. We like the people in our life as long as they get us what we want. We use them. Kind of like you would a wrench, right? Or a a basketball. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. But at some point, these are human beings. And these human beings need to be understood. They need to be cared for. Have we got it backwards? I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you have any ideas on that, uh, text us at Dr. Matt Show um, because uh, really at some point we've got to stop seeing other people as just something that we can beat up or throw out or dispose of or build a wall around or 
ignore and instead start seeing people as, you know, human beings, offspring from a higher power. I, I can only imagine what uh, what our God would think we're like as we just use each other for everything, for jobs, for alike. How interesting, too, that what happens to us when we simply separate ourselves by being able to make an anonymous comment on a YouTube or a Facebook page. How all of a sudden we turn into somebody that we wouldn't be proud of, that we wouldn't want anyone else to know we either talk like that or act like that or respond like that. And then there's those that wouldn't care. And why wouldn't they care that they're demeaning another or pulling another person down? Something's going on there, and it might be, and the Dalai Lama may be onto it, uh, are we using people? Martin Buber used to talk about this idea of um, – uh, he called it I-it or I-thou where we have a relationship with people and the relationship is either going to be I, which is me, in relation to an it, a thing, or the I, me, in relation to a thou, which would be kind of a highly respected uh, other person. So think about your relationships in your life. Do you tend to approach the people around you more like a, like they are an it, a thing, or do you approach them like that they are a, a thou? Remember, we use the word thou when you're praying to deity, when you're referring to the higher power that is has incredible, uh, incredible value, incredible worth. I, it, or I, thou. I think it's an important part for all of us to be looking at. And uh, and actually evaluate our lives through that spectrum. Do we do we affiliate with people that treat others like its and things, or like you know thous and beings? It's going to eventually come back, I think, to hurt all of us if we're only treating people like its and things. Eventually, we demean and debase the entire human race. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, you know, as we've been talking about millennials, we got to be really careful because any there's just there's no such thing as just you're a millennial. You know, you obviously are selfish and individualistic and anti anti community. Come on. The reality is we um the research can tell us a lot, but these people are still individuals, right? So don't just peg them as a as a group. Let's 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 interact with these people one by one and just see what's going on. Before we had all of this research and before we were releasing studies about everybody constantly, we used to just think people were selfish. We would never say, "Oh, those millennials." But there's some the interesting thing that uh, Dr. Twangy brings up is the language that they tend to use more eyes and me's and minds. Less we's and us. It's it's that's interesting. That's interesting data. By the way, it's also just a basic interesting point of being somebody that that others want to be with. If you're too I and me, fewer people are going to want to be with you than if you're about we or us. So millennials get to know them. Don't just peg them. Forever there have been generational differences. Forever. Every generation has questioned the next generation and thought, oh, what's going on with these kids nowadays? But also we might want to look at it and think of it as, as being parents. We, if, if we have made it in any way, shape, or form, if we as a generation uh, X or 
uh, if we as the baby boomer generations, if we have influenced our children to be less trusting of the medical world, government, um, religion, those are major institutions, right, that forever in our country, in our society have been, uh, you know, these major supports that that we wanted to have people trust. Have, if we're part of the reason that these millennials aren't trusting those institutions, then quit blaming the millennial, for heaven's sakes. If, if, if people, if millennials don't trust the idea of getting married because they look at their parents like we're a bunch of messed up people and we haven't necessarily made marriage look very attractive because when we look at our parents, they look like they're exhausted and they'd rather be alone on their iPad, then quit blaming a millennial. It's it's us, okay? There's we are the problem, and uh, we got to remember that if we sat there, if we made um, a human being feel like they can do anything without feeling responsible to have to do anything, then whose fault is that? It's all of ours, and it's I don't necessarily see the millennials as a problem. I see them as a major major opportunity. I also see it as a major shift that might be very healthy. How healthy could it be to have a group of people that aren't buying into the idea that you need a mortgage to somehow be advancing in your life? I mean, the whoever in, implemented the idea that the mortgage is the key to advancing. If all of a sudden the millennials are happy without a mortgage, wow. Now, I'm sure business world hates it. I'm sure the real estate markets aren't happy, but um, what what about uh, you know you as a parent drove your millennial child to think that they just need more vacation? Maybe the fact that you're a workaholic and you're never around, and they realize that dad was constantly stressed out. Powerful. So it's just a shift, and you know it's a swing, and it might swing for some really far, to maybe too far to one side, but for the rest. It's just going to land somewhere in the middle. But we might want to learn from our millennials as well. We might want to start noticing that, yeah, maybe I ought not just keep fighting the dragon to have more debt. Maybe I ought not just keep working myself to the bone. Maybe I need to kind of just back down and have less, want less, and just find my peace, be more free, have more quality as Dr. Twangy taught us. By the way, how on earth could you ever bemoan a millennial if they're the, one of the most tolerant generations? Well, but tolerance, sometimes you need to hate people. No, we don't, actually. We don't. We don't. Uh, a la Charleston, South Carolina. <sighs> Ironically, a millennial. Ironically, not fitting the mold for the other millennials that tend to be more tolerant. So remember, there's a ton of good. And so don't ever just, and if you catch yourself doing it and you catch yourself thinking, oh, these young millennials, back off. Because as a guy that works with them all day, they're pretty flipping amazing. Now they're weird as ever. Not to be rude as I look at Ben and James. <laughs> but they're they're pretty amazing. And I, I'm excited to think that, man, okay, they want more freedom, they want more quality, they want more tolerance, and they also invented the selfie. Isn't that a weird paradox? 
they they want more freedom, yet they're so completely attached to their devices. Paradoxical. They don't necessarily want as much religion, but they do worship the selfie. <laughs> it's paradoxical. It's no more different than our generation, whatever generation you were raised in. It's just we all have our quirks. Even the healthiest generations have some issues, right? Pretty interesting stuff, folks. Again, uh, we're just a bunch of people on a great big ball of mud flying through space. And yet we all have so much confidence. None of us are actually, actually, you know, flying this big space ball. But we all act as if, yeah, we got it. What's the worst thing that could happen? Maybe what we all need to be is a lot more tolerant, a lot more understanding of each other, of every generation. And I think when we do that, man, it could make a huge, huge difference. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Could we ever expect our healthcare system to care more about our health than we do? You know, in the end, how much, if you could take a pill to lower your cholesterol or and your and, and eliminate some of your heart disease, or if you had to, you know, exercise, meditate, uh, do some yoga, um, and, and all of these other things that demand so much of you, would you do it? in order to create better health for yourself? Well, according to a nationwide survey conducted earlier this year by Harris Poll on behalf of CareerBuilder, it says that 56% of U.S. employees think that they are overweight. That sentiment of uh, 3,420 full-time workers um, in the study, half of those felt like they were overweight. According to the findings, two in five workers believe they have put on pounds in their current job on par with last year. 25% said they gained more than 10 pounds in the last year. 10% gained more than 20 pounds. Why the weight gain? It's attributed to sitting at the desk. 51% of the people blamed sitting at the desk all day. Too tired from work to exercise, 45%. Eating because of stress, 38%. Eating out regularly, 24%. No time to exercise was 38%. Workplace celebrations. Happy birthday! (laughs) Happy birthday! 18% are gaining weight because of that. How about the office candy jar? 16% of people say that uh, that is what's helping, that's causing them to gain weight. Happy hour to, you know, celebrate getting through the day, 4%. So in the end, we're getting, we're getting heavier and heavier, and many are blaming our workplace for that, even though many work uh, organizations are, have a culture where they're trying to create a wellness culture. In fact, in some uh, people, in some programs, you can actually earn about $532 a year just for being involved. For example, some uh, wellness programs, so look into them at your, in your organization, will pay you $164 for health biometric screenings, or they'll pay you $132 for quitting, uh, for smoking, stopping your smoking. $111 if you enter into a weight management program in some of these uh, wellness programs. So just know there's resources for you. There's, there's places you can go, or you can just you know, continue to struggle. We had a yogurt parfait bar uh, offered by our wellness program to draw everyone in. Everyone will come for some parfait, right? And uh, 
when they come, then you can learn more about the wellness program. So look into your organization. Or, by the way, if you if you you know don't have a company to go to, look into what your cities are doing, and uh, even the hospital program that you belong to. If you have insurance, you probably yourself have other wellness programs you could be taking advantage of. But there are resources there for everybody. Again, the goal is to become as healthy as we can, and let's do it together. For heaven's sakes, uh, let's even let's not just rely on our senators and legislators to bring the health to us. Let's start figuring out how we can take care of ourselves. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. I'm telling you, I've been quite blessed. I had uh, a mom and a dad, neither of which uh, graduated from a university. Um, I think they both may have attended a semester or a quarter or two. But the thing I think that happens to a lot of parents when they don't graduate And for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, we've been hearing the importance of education, get an education, obtain all the education you can. Parents have a weird guilt that, you know, you need to go to school. You get your kids, you got to go to school. You got, you really got to go to school. So I think the generations before my generation, I'm 48 years old, those generations push school a lot. And, um, and I, and I was interesting because my parents that didn't go to school ended up having, uh, three of their four children get college degrees at a master's degree or higher. So we took it seriously. Now, my parents would always read that. And I don't know that I've ever met anybody that reads more than my mother and my father. They both uh, would read, you know, 10 books a month and uh, very well read, very well, um, very literate, very healthy people. Here's what's happening, though, that I'm seeing as I work at a university now and interact with a lot of younger generations. There's so many other ways to learn. And college uh, education and and universities themselves are losing a lot of trust in the world because, A, it's an institution. But, B, they've been increasing costs for at 300 percent growth in tuition um, over the last 30 years. So – it's creating more and more problems. And I wonder what happens going forward. So I would just suggest to all of us parents that we, that we maybe teach our children the principle of learning, teach our children the principle of, um, of trying to understand, of growth, of development. And it doesn't necessarily have to always be rooted in universities. It doesn't have to always be rooted in schools. It could be rooted in reading books. In uh, It could be deeply rooted in using the Internet as a better tool for research and understanding. It could be having a family dinner where you ask better questions of one another and you have an engaging conversation. Don't tie learning only to a university. Teach your children the principles of learning, of growth, of questioning, of curiosity. These things, I believe, will serve them long term. I have a son right now that could make – uh, more money than probably any of my kids that are in college um, simply because of his talent set and what he's learned on the Internet about running the Internet, editing for the Internet, music for the Internet. He just he's, – he's got it. And there's not – I'm sure – I'm not sure there's a lot of things he could learn at a university um, except those principles. But just because you go to a university doesn't mean you get those principles of learning and curiosity and uh, quality and values – so be careful. Teach the principle. And then it, you can still push going to school, but make sure that they're, they're trained up in the learning principle and in the being curious principle and in respecting everybody. 
Why not raise everybody if we can? Why not make universities free to everybody so we can raise our entire society to a higher level so next generations can have even more understanding, more insight, more light? Anyway, just a little just a little idea for all of us. What part of the problem are you? What part of the solution can you be? What can you do today to go out and start uh, becoming the change that you seek in this world as Gandhi taught us. We'll take a break and come back, continue the journey and the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. If you suffer from anxiety or just worry and you stress a lot, then, man, buckle in, folks, because we've got a great guest for you coming up uh, right now. Dr. Reed Wilson has been on the show before. He's one of the foremost experts on anxiety and how to stop it, and he's written many books. In fact, the book we're talking about today is Stopping the Noise in Your Head, The New Way to Overcome Anxiety and Worry. Dr. Reed Wilson, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, glad to be here, Matt. This, to me, man, I'm telling you, I'm so glad you're back. Because I have seen over and over, even since the last time we met in your last book, Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, um, that we talked about, there's more and more of a need for help with anxiety. What do you think is going on? Why are so many people so anxious and, and stressed today? Well, we're talking about 40 million people, so it's a lot. Anxiety disorders are the number one disorder in the country. You know, we, we, we got a lot more tasks on our plate now than we used to. We've got all the stimulus that's coming in. We've got um, have to take our cell phones home from work and work from, you know, home every day and on the weekends. So I think there's a lot more pressure in that way, and stress and pressure turn to worry, and then there we are. You know, we're just, we're inundated, and it'd be great if we could quiet some of that external stimulus down, but we also have to figure out what to do once it starts to show up inside our body and our mind. Is, is, there, um, is there a known cause for this? Because it's just, it seems like some people handle it well or differently, better than others. Well, yes. I, you know, I think some people are built a little more resilient than others. Some people have the nervous system of a turtle some people have the nervous system of a racehorse and uh, and so i i think that part is there and a lot of it is genetics there's some issue around developmental stuff so that's why we talk about helping parents help their kids but i think one of the pieces that's also there is especially with the anxiety disorders is this intolerance of uncertainty about certain themes. Uh, you know, people who need to know how it's going to turn out, need to have the answer, need to do it right. Perfectionism comes in there. So we've got a mix of, of nature and nurture that show up in people who don't handle worry and anxiety quite so well. So true. So true. Talk to us um, about your book, Stopping the Noise in Your Head. Um, what, what do you mean by the noise in our head? Well, if you think about worries that come in, and worries are essential. We have to have worries. Right. That's how we prioritize our tasks, right. and it, it motivates us. 
But there's worries that are signals, and there's worries that are noise, and that's where we have trouble. Signals are supposed to be, you know, worry is really built to be the first step in the problem-solving process. And so when you get a worry that comes in, all worries come in as signals. And we got to dis- differentiate, is this something I need to handle right now, or is this noise? You know, I already have it scheduled, I'm going to work on it tomorrow, or, you know, I'm, I'm, it, there, it's repetitious, unproductive thoughts that make us anxious are the noise. And so that's really what the book is about, how to sort those things out. We're not working on problem solving in the book. We're working on all that stuff that I don't want to hear in my head, but I do. You know, we spent 25% of our day talking to ourselves. That's one, you know, one minute out of every four minutes we're talking to ourselves. And if we allow the worry to be talking so much, that's trouble. So that's what mm. the book is about, how to manage those noisy worries. Boy, that's that's such a great way to look at it. I mean, the our brain would be warning us, hey, you better get that thing turned in. You better get that report done. You better get that done. But you may already make, be making progress on it. Um, and and if, if you're not careful, then you actually could just keep having – because it, it's not just a thought either, is it? Because the thought eventually turns to a chemical reaction in you. Oh, absolutely. The thought instantly creates that distress. And, you know, we – uh, that that's what happened. And then part of what happens in the brain is the the mind thinks that worrying is problem solving. It doesn't understand that worry is actually problem generating. So we really do have to come in consciously and make some decisions about what we're going to do. And and part of what I talk about is really four, four tasks that we have. You have to step back in the moment and recognize, I'm doing it now. I'm having this worry, and it's not necessary. Then you've got to be willing. The second step really is to want it, which is the insane part of it all, which is if I'm already worrying, fine, I got this. The, the reason we want to want it is because if you don't want it, you know, if you hear in your mind this worry, you go, oh, I've got to get rid of this, that generates more distress. The amygdala hears you say, this is wrong and bad, help me. So there's a kind of a manipulation that we do psychologically around that. And then you just got to step forward to the tasks that are hard. So many people worry because they don't get around to the task. Yeah. And, and that's critically important. But when you get around to these tasks, you know, you've got to be willing to be awkward, clumsy, insecure, unsure, maybe even embarrassed and ashamed. Because if, and that's where people get stopped too who have anxiety. Because too, they. Like I have sons that uh, they're way so they're so socially conscientious that that they like they won't we we all, we watched a family dancing together and just embar- in an embarrassing way just having fun and dancing and all my kids were like yeah I would never do that I'm not gonna do that I'm never gonna ever ever do something like that it's almost like they're they just don't want they don't want to be able to relax and let go but it ends up becoming a it's too awkward for him. Is when in your in your process of recognizing the worry, kind of working through the want versus the not want, stepping forward. What was the fourth task? The fourth ta- 
ask is to be cunning. Uh, th- these, all these disorders are very clever. They use human nature. Who in the world wants to get up and give a talk right. if they may be judged critically or they might have a panic attack while they're up there? It's, so you've got to change your attitude a little bit. So that's, I guess you know, part of that being willing to be clumsy and awkward and so forth is part of it because you're... Well, any time we learn something new, we're going to be clumsy at it. If you decided to master um, Italian at your age, yeah. <laughs> you're going to be really not that great at it. Sorry, man. No, sorry. No, but, you're but, right on. You know, if you're, not, if you're not willing to go through that phase, right. so that, that's where a, a kind of cunning move is. And, and the other, you know, it, what I talk about a lot is, Act as though, and, that, and I don't mean fake it till you make it. I mean, when you get this kind of insecurity that's stopping you, you got to get a position that is, I'm going to operate now as though I can do this, as though these worries are, are noise I don't need to pay attention to. Mm. Them. So I'm going to step forward as though everything's going to work out okay, because otherwise, the, you know, the biggest crutch that people use in in word situations is just avoid yeah. they just step back and then then you know you can get comfortable but then your your world is really small and and it gets harder the next time like you you're teaching us some skills to overcome it but if you just hide from it, then, I mean, this isn't going to change. Your anxiety will just be the next thing tomorrow and the next yeah, thing yeah, tomorrow. Here's the other interesting thing that reinforces it. When I, you know, step out of the grocery store because I started to get kind of panicky or whatever, I finish that chart in my mind. And I imagine my anxiety getting worse and worse and worse and something terrible happening. And that imagery after an avoidance is people don't realize that they do that every single time you know good thing i left or good thing i took my valium or Mm. good thing i had my cell phone with me or something terrible would have happened so that always gets reinforced you gotta that's part about step you know the other part about stepping back is stepping back and recognizing what your challenger is doing to you in your in your mind and go okay well that's oh right i just stepped out my heart rate's cooled slowed down my respiration's better i feel better this is a good strategy to back away and then as you're you're saying matt you just get trapped yeah your avoidance this is um, also again. We're speaking with Dr. Reed Wilson, who is the author of the book um, "Stopping the Noise in Your Head: A New Way to Overcome Anxiety and Worry." He's written many other books and um, is also just an international expert in the treatment of anxiety disorders, um, and has a, a treatment center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Also, you can find more at his website, anxieties.com. But Reed, one of the things too, it seems like that. A lot of the answers to this, um, it's – I mean there's, there's the therapy side of it where you can go get the therapy. But a lot of this seems like it's just kind of recognizing what you're battling as, as far as anxiety goes. And then it's – a lot of it seems like emotional intelligence, social intelligence. It's just – it's information. You just need more and more skills and coping abilities to handle it. 
Well, I, I think you're right. It's, it's like psychoeducation. If you, yeah. I'm a cognitive therapist, so, so I'm going to say yes to what you're, you're saying, which is, and I, I really believe, even if people have to come into treatment for some of this stuff, if you can get your head straight about it, if you can get oriented about what's required and why you would go toward, you know, the, the paradoxical part here is your job is to want to experience what you don't want to experience. That's, that's nuts. <laughs> but if you can understand that, that if you really got something in front of you that you want to accomplish, you want to learn to fly comfortably to the wedding in three months or whatever it may be, you have to get yourself in your head straight around, I'm taking on this task. You know, if, if I have to eat what you're serving, give me two portions and give it to me now. It's, it's an, if you can make it into almost like an aggressive sport, if you can get big, you know, there's a part of us that gets afraid and intimidated and doesn't have many resources, but we got another side of us that can certainly take on, you know, a, a mama bear kind of approach yeah. to things. If we can get ourselves focused like that and then step into, even step into treatment, oh, your therapist is going to really love you because yeah. it's going to make her job a lot easier. It's so true. I mean, just almost taking it on as, yeah, like you're saying, as if it's a sport, as if it's something you aggressively want to get better. Can you, just in all of your experience of working with people with anxiety, talk to me about the benefits of um, somebody that can effectively manage their anxiety? Because it seems like as I interact with a lot of people suffering from anxiety, they have a, a unique, actually almost, um, I don't know, an advanced sense of others, of themselves. They read people pretty well a lot of times. There seems like a lot of gifts around this. Well, I think, you know, I started way back 35 years ago working with panic disorder and agoraphobics, and, and, you know, that's often what they would say after treatment, which is they are they feel weller than well, hmm. you know. Yeah. I think part of it is the willing to be vulnerable, willing to be congruent with what you're feeling, willing to have people see your frailties and keep moving anyway, that, you know, I'm the messenger and I may, you know, goof things up or say the wrong word, but it's the message that I'm trying to deliver that is important to me. And I think, I think the other piece that people learn over time, and I think we as therapists make a little mistake here, is that, you know, we try to teach people to relax all the time. You know, if you get anxious, you know, learn the, you know, do these little relaxation skills. And relaxation is fine if it comes easily, but I think people who really catch on to this stuff I would call this arousal congruent, which means mm. when I step into a situation, I am anxious. I don't have to calm down to master this situation. When you tell somebody or somebody believes when I step into this situation and I get anxious, I need to calm down now, that's what I would call arousal incongruent. Right. It's hard to change my psychophysiology in the moment that feels threatening to me. That's just a difficult task. So I think people who do get better are better capable of handling those moments of anxiety instead of running away from them. That's, you know, maybe that's a great, it's a, you, you don't need to not feel aroused and anxious. You, you just need to be able to feel it and 
drive with it. And focus your attention. Yeah. You know, change your change your attention away from, oh my God, how's this gonna go? You know, we can only hold on to four chunks of information at any one moment. And if I start thinking about this is bad, I don't want this happening, I can't do this, well now there's a kind of self fulfilling prophecy because I'm getting clumsy because I can't I don't have enough consciousness to focus on the task. I'm all tied up in I hope things go perfectly. Such great advice. Um, when you think about it too, Reed, again, somebody who's who's uh, processed and, and uh, worked with and done therapy with people, cognitive behavioral approaches, what are some of the what are some of the other tools you use to help eliminate the noise? Or how do you break down some of those other categories you were talking about? Um, what are some tricks of the trade? Well, I think if we just back up a little bit to this concept of, of stepping back, for me, you know, as we were saying, for me to understand what is expected of me, what is going to happen in my body just naturally, and be willing to recognize that moment and then welcome that moment, it's really welcoming it. It's like, come on, come on in, you know, allow the distress to come in, allow the uncertainty and, and anxiety to come in, because they're going to come in anyway. Yeah. And, and the other thing I, I talk to people about, and also parents working with children, it's like, you can't do this work and feel confident about it. You have to, you have to do this work and be willing to be courageous. You know, confidence is, I know this is going to turn out. Well, anything that we're doing that's difficult, we're not going to know how it's going to turn out, although we have wishes. So to step forward courageously, I'm scared and I'm going to do it anyway. You know, a lot of children who have anxiety disorders, about 65% of them have a parent who has an anxiety disorder. So if we can help the parents model being courageous for their kids, that's helpful too. I think we go, you know, <laughs> courage first, yeah. comfort second is, is the way it's best to go, in, in my opinion. I think I learned from you in one of your books uh, about anxious parenting um, – that sometimes it's the more anxious parent that is hardest for the child to work with. Well, you know, there are, again, skills for the parents to pay attention to because I can be really anxious about what my child's about to do as she climbs up on the monkey bars or whatever. But on my face, I need to look pleased, <laughs> right? You feel whatever yeah. you want inside yourself, you know. And, and I think the other the other piece that happens is that parents get this, this kind of sense of danger and every, you know, going outdoors is dangerous and, and you know, learning to ride a bike is dangerous and, and that needs to get shifted. And, and they tend to, you know, your child comes and says, you know, just as a simple example, I'm, I'm afraid that there's some, you know, there's a boogeyman underneath the bed, you know, for, for the parent to say, don't be scared, that's just not helpful. Yeah. You know, it, we want to start with our kids who are scared to go, I get it. You know, I understand why you're scared. That, that makes sense to me, because if I were thinking so-and-so, whatever, then I'd be scared, too. Let's, let's start talking about, you know, how to step forward even though you're scared, or, you know, let me help you reframe the situation so, so it's not quite so scary for you. 
So mm. you you made an interesting point too that twenty five percent of the time we are talking to ourselves. That, exactly. That's and a scary <laughs> thought. That that's a scary thought. But you know, if you think about it, that's what's happening. You know, we're we're making decisions moment by moment. Let's. I'm going to pay attention to this now. I need to stop paying attention to my email and get to work and mm. that kind of thing. So, so self-talk is a huge part of what I do with people. And, and we do it in two simple ways. One is either I talk to myself to motivate myself. You know, I can do this. I'm ready. Uh, whatever happens, I'll handle it. Those kinds of things. And then secondly, we have to give ourselves instructions. Sometimes they need to come across almost like commands. You know, any, anyone who is in a profession that deals with crisis, you know, firefighters, uh, police officers, uh, surgical unit folks, pilots, uh, commercial airlines, they all operate based on commands. Mm. They tra- and they train themselves over and over again. Why? Because when you become scared, your brain turns to mush. <laughs> you can't. It's very difficult to concentrate. So you better be doing some things more automatically when you hear it. So, you know, somebody who is, has social anxiety and is afraid to speak up in class that she may say the wrong thing and other students criticize her, she, when she's ready she, in, in the classroom, she needs to have a message that comes up that says, speak up, yeah. <laughs> raise your hand, you know, you can do this, it's time. And, and really, you know, the last thing I would just say about this is, is that before you enter some of these situations like that, get yourself oriented, talk to yourself before you step in there, because when you step into a difficult situation, your first response you're going to have is, this seems like a really bad idea, right? <laughs> and you've got to get ready for those kind of messages. And then almost, you know, what I'd say is, you, you know, you strategize ahead of time, and then you've got to operate like the actor in the drama, like an automaton. You know, don't analyze your actions in the middle of a threatening situation because then you're going to back up. Yeah, no, such great advice, such great advice. Dr. Reed Wilson, thank you again for your time, your insight. The name of the book, Stopping the Noise in Your Head, The New Way to Overcome Anxiety and Worry. You can also go to his website, uh, www.anxieties.com, anxieties.com. Helping you combat anxiety. This is the Matt Townsend Show. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. Play ball, friends. You know, again, it's a wave of anxiousness, worry, nervousness that's overtaking. I think so many of us, 40 million people now suffering from anxiety and worry. Just a a little bit of advice that I'm seeing a lot just with my own clients is this simple idea of, Quit passing this down or quit passing it down to your children without doing something about it. Somebody needs to stop the pattern. And um, again, anxiety, there's there's definitely, you know, we know that there's a genetic component of it that we do hand down. But as we just learned from Dr. Reed Wilson, there are so many things we can learn to do by paying attention to our emotions, by recognizing the worry, 
by not just fighting it and not wanting it and putting our head in the sand, we also need to learn to fix, to adjust, to learn to to manage the emotional side, but the options. To me, it really, and the metaphor I use with my clients is when you have anxiety, you're like a Ferrari in a world full of Chevys. Everyone around you seems to be handling, you know, the four-wheeling adventure so well, and you keep overheating and spinning out, and you don't get any traction, and you just keep struggling. It, it doesn't mean you're not a great car. You're a Ferrari, for heaven's sakes. It's just you may not be in the perfect situation for you. So you've got to start adjusting. You've got to shift differently. You've got to pit. You've got to recognize what aren't the situations or prepare yourself better for those situations so that uh, they don't sneak up on you and you lose all traction and all hope. It's it's some pretty basic skills. But again, I'm not saying you're to blame if your kids have it. That's not the point. The point is you as an adult can start to learn how better to handle yours. And as you learn better, you'll have better ways and methods to teach your children. If you have anxiety and worry, you can no longer pretend like you don't. You can no longer just hide away. If you have children, you need to teach your children how to overcome it by modeling it and by being a great example of learning how to drive that Ferrari that uh, you have and now that your child has. So anyway, uh, just insight. That's all we're trying to give you, more tools, more information to live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Yes, it's time to get back to some empty news with Jeffrey Simpson. What have you got, Jeff? You know, you've got a lot of experience as a divorce mediator. Yes. I wonder how you would counsel this couple uh, after losing her home to her ex-husband in a bitter divorce. Ah. The woman decided, you know, if I can't live there, nobody can. No, 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 no. But unfortunately, uh, it ruined it for about 19 other homes as well because she stacked a set of mattresses in her home, set it ablaze, Uh, and apparently the fire got a little out of control and it damaged 19 other homes in the neighborhood. no. Yeah. Yeah, not a good way to do that. Yeah. So uh, she set the fire and then left the house with her two cats. Authorities say she walked for an hour to a local Walmart where she called 911 to report the fire. Her home was one of four houses that were destroyed while 16 others suffered damage. Holy cow, yeah. Yeah. There's better ways. Better ways to handle your emotion. That's the problem. Once you're in the moment, you just – you kind of lose it a bit and next thing you know, you're in jail for arson. Ah, folks, it's a tough world we're living in, and uh, we just got to find better ways to handle it. That's why we're here. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Terry's been doing some research about parents that apparently have a little cheating problem. So the Wall Street Journal has this article. It's entitled, Why Do Parents Cheat at Family Board Games? Now, is this, is, I didn't know this was a big thing. Well, so there's this effort to distract your child from the technology. Yeah. Get them away from the phones and the yeah. tablets, computers. And so parents have been purchasing board games. 
They yeah. figure we'll teach them some strategy. They can play some games. It's fun. It's, it's be more interactive. Fun, right. There's been a 27% growth in board game sales from 2015. Last year, it hit $2.9 billion, according to the whatever marketing group is focused on board games. Uh, far outpa- outpacing sales growth for all toys. Yeah. Right, so a big focus wow. on, and if you go look, there's all kinds of board games. Yeah, oh yeah, varieties everywhere online. There's all kinds of companies that m- try to make unique games, uh-huh. and, and for all age groups. But it says um, here it says the downside to the old fashioned family time is the tedium of some of these board games that your five and six year old are at their level to play. Right, right, right. like a Candyland, yeah. Shoots of Ladders, those nightmares. Kind of games. It says your kid almost gets to the end, and then they draw that card that sends them all the way back down to the start, says Ryan O'Connor of Deerfield, New Hampshire. He's a father of five- and six-year-old daughters. He goes, I've got things to do, like you know, make them dinner. I've got to go. <laughs> yeah, i got, I mean, people to see. He goes, that's why parents are palming cards, strategically adding pieces when their children aren't looking, and sometimes oh, outright lying. sure. Not without irony, some parents have used technology to make games go faster. Um, data analyst Ethan Markowitz employed statistical analysis to figure out a more efficient way of hastening shoots and ladders. <laughs> Finding the end of that game. I don't like that yeah. game myself. After one too many mind-numbing games, he goes, just like a senior citizen at the bingo parlor, my son is hooked. <laughs> it's like an all-you-can-eat salad bar. He wrote this on his own blog detailing his finding is all we do is spin move, spin move until my son performs his victory dance or if I'm unlucky enough to actually win the game, he demands a rematch. Right, because he can't stand to lose. All right. So he's a data analyst. So he went and looked at, at shoots and ladders. There are nine ladders and ten shoots, which means a bias towards losing because the shoots send you back down to the right, bottom of the exactly. board, right? So he programmed a simulation of 10,000 two-player games, which showed the dreariness could last as many as 146 turns. His solution was to tape a new ladder to the board between space 47 and 72. Oh, he that, invented a ladder. Yeah, that lowered the low, the longest game to only 110 moves. Wow. Right? Geez. Barry Wise, a father, set out to help preserve uh, the sanity of parents with his own data analysis, suggesting eliminating the longest shoot spanning 87 or space, space 87 to 24. So they're they're taking what? the kid's game and they're trying to figure out how can I do this Little so cheats. the kid doesn't notice. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't you just get another game? Okay, so Candyland. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the guy, the 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 one of the two men we just talked about, recommend Candyland with its three point four percent chance of running longer than seventy five moves. Okay, right? how about Legos? He goes also. You have to eliminate the rule Legos. of sending pieces backwards in Candyland. Yeah, it's such demoralizing to the parent when you're like. Ah, don't no. go back to the gummy gummy <laughs> drop road or whatever it's called. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. So Jennifer Hogan Jones of Wichita, Kansas. Yeah. Again, more parents more, cheating. Yeah. She argued on board games. Her her she has a blog apparently about board games, but she says purposeful losing for your child. Right. She says that children like her daughter need to learn how to handle disappointment. The plan is to prepare her for losing in life so in 15 years she won't throw a hissy fit and slam the door when she loses out on something at the yeah, office. Yeah, that's a good point. So she's like, we're, 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 we're helping our children. Kids, yeah. Board parents are using a wide variety of tactics to bring their family games like Monopoly and Uno to a close as quick as possible, including palming cards, adding pieces when the kids aren't looking. Uh, they talk about um, 
how like the the five and six year olds it's kind of set up because as they're holding their cards yeah. in a card game, they tend to look away and get distracted yeah. and tip their cards, and so the parents can look and see what if it's Uno, they can, you can yeah. see the color and you can like manipulate it so that you win. <laughs> just to end it because you got things to do and then you, you served your time right you helped you played with your kids but I mean I, I guess are we missing the point it seems like we're missing the point yes because but, or maybe what you could do is you could just say we'll go for a time limit you could just you set could a that. timer and our we have 40 minutes for game time and that might be a quarter of a shoots and ladder game right because you know they run easily into the three hours. Now what we do is we'll set a time limit, and then we'll we'll also point out there's you can't get mad, you can't pout. Mm-hmm. This is the time we have to play. Because yeah. we get he's like all all on board till you hit that time, and he's like, no, we can't stop. You know he goes. <laughs> no, hey. That's that. You know what else you do is you give your kid a Benadryl, <laughs> then you play the board game. Drug your children. That's another this way is, to do this it. This is the coach's approach here today. Yeah. Um, also, they talk about here that uh, Hasbro created a new Monopoly version that encouraged cheating only in this case to win, right? So that's the whole point is you figure you're going to win. So prompted by the late 2017 survey of customers, Hasbro plans to create a cheater's version. It's out on the market right now, I believe. About half of the respondents admitted to duplicity while playing the real estate game. He goes, we were quite surprised it was that high, that there's that many people half cheating. Half of the says, people are cheating. So marketing executives from Hasbro. The, uh, the new edition will reward players who can, say, move a rival's piece without notice or collect rent of an opponent's property. Yeah. Like when you tell someone, oh, I own that, and they just give you rent, you're like, all right, and you get bonus points for cheating. Take that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. A, a cheater's version. It seems like we're maybe missing the point of all of this. It used to be that you had nothing else to do, yeah. so you would play these games, and they were just fun forever because you could talk and relate. Now it's like we play them because we feel like we should, but we're really trying to just get through it so we can get to what we really want to do. But Netflix. as a parent who has been stuck in the never-ending cycle of shoots and ladders yeah. or in Candyland where you get towards the end and you have like five or six spaces left. Right. And so you can truly only move if you get that color. Yeah. You draw that from you the track. card. But then when you draw the mushroom, the uh, I keep calling mushrooms, but the uh, gummy bear or gummy drop. Yeah. And you have to drop like 40 spaces back. The game never ends. It, it is, and the, it's like, come on, let's just end this. Let's do something fast. That's why tic tac toe is good yeah. because there's an end. Uh huh. It just seems like the games are set up to never end. Connect but. four. Mm-hmm. That's a great game because you that goes fast, right? And you can lose really easily on that game. You just you just keep you just keep you know not seeing the big mistakes. Wow. Okay, parents, what are we doing to our kids? For heaven's sakes, maybe we ought to just find the joy in just being there. Set some rules, set some time limits, and then I guess cheat. <laughs> it's just what you got to do sometimes. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, it's an interesting little, I don't know, contrast for me as I come back. I, I just spent a week away, went to uh, Mexico and uh, visited Cancun, and also. Uh, one of the new wonders of the world, by the way, in, in the new list of seven wonders of the world, Chichen Itza is one of the places that we visited. And it, it just it's so interesting to me. And then I come and I do a show today this morning about the political world and all of these decisions that we make. Um, I hear about an old world, uh, you know, 600 to 900 A.D., 
down in Mexico, a Mayan community, um, and and really what how how their community turned and how it changed, and then I come and contrast it to our political world, and I think first of all how seriously grateful we all ought to be that we have a democracy where you still have a vote, you still have a say. You may not like what's going on. You may think a lot of it's going to happen with or without you. It still may feel like a coronation for some of these leaders, but there is a big difference between actually just having kings born to kings that then basically run, you know, countries or and cultures uh, into extinction. But you still have a say. You still have a lot of blessing and a lot of opportunity here in the United States, and it really, truly, it it was an important, I think, contrast for me to just go learn about these other cultures. I also learned something that even though they may have been so, you know, uh, so basic, so, um, I don't know, just base type of, of living of humans, they still had the exact same needs, the same wants. They still had kids and children. They still had desires. They still wanted the best for their families, for their lives. Folks, this you got a shot. You got an opportunity as you're here on this great big ball of mud to do something and to be a part of something, and you really got to get intentional about it because in a few hundred years, a few thousand years, you're just an afterthought. Eventually somebody will be you know, working through your the rubble of your home and and remember, oh, man, some American must have lived here. It's just crazy how quickly things can change. We were in these incredible ruins, pyramids. We were noticing in a wonderful arena where they would play a game of a sport where the teams would go head-to-head. I was imagining the Super Bowl. But in this Super Bowl game, the loser's captain— Whatever team lost, their captain would be killed. So you better win. Can you imagine if in our Super Bowl, the captain of the losing team executed in front of all of the world? Well, that's what was going on back then. And it's interesting because things change, and yet they also can stay very much the same. So please, as we're all sitting here, you know, all of this news is basically setting up our future. It's setting up how we will be seen, what will impact us, what won't. Will you just get into it? Even if you don't want to get into the political side, start paying attention. Start figuring out what your values are, how you want to be influencing these decisions, these debates. Again, you don't have to get in and fight the good fight, but you should know what's going on. You should know who you're voting for because it is a right that right now at this stage of the world, it's a right that you have the privilege of having. Who knows if it will always stay that way? And I'm not here to scare you, but it will if you make it a point. So get more involved. Get your head wrapped around it because, friends, it's, it's not just always guaranteed. It's not a permanent positive guarantee. And eventually, a 1,000 years from now, 2,000 years from now, what will our story be as a country? What will your story be as a person? Will you have connected to your family? Will you have left a legacy for your children, for your grandchildren? It just put in the front of my mind the need to live and to live a good life, a life that could be handed down, a life that you're proud of, 
a life that you want other people to know about. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. What a, what a difficult job. Can you imagine being the CEO of your company? Now, some of you would be like, oh, yeah, I would kill it, kill it. But it's got to be a really difficult thing to make sure everyone's happy, everyone's got an opinion, everybody, you know, thinks they could lead the company better. And then your job is to actually get it done and meet with the board. And But, yeah, but you make so much money. Um, it's interesting uh, when when Jim talked about the fact that the market is, is what uh, pays – pays these CEOs um, and, and you're paid, he said, what you're worth. But what, what he means by that is if I can go get millions of listeners to listen to a radio show, then um, and they're doing it because they want to listen to me, then we can afford to pay me more. I'm not like making an argument here for myself, by the way. Um, but the point is there's a market. And the the funny thing is some of the most important jobs in the world don't get paid by the market necessarily. Um, they don't necessarily – we don't pay our teachers based on the great insights that they gave their students to go allow them to go on and create Apple um, or to create Google. We didn't pay them for that. But we pay our CEOs based on – the marketplace, right? And so it's easy to get really offended and and frustrated by what CEOs are making. Um, and so – and there's no easy way through this. Some of the most important jobs when you think about it aren't even paid. I mean being a parent, you're not paid to be a parent. You're not paid to be uh, – you're not paid anything near what you'd be worth to be uh, that nurse that just is there for you and actually connected and relating to you. Think of anybody in a job or a profession that really has made a difference and uh, they're not probably being paid for all the social and the relational stuff that matters. So um, it's hard. It's hard when we look at a world where some CEOs are making hundreds of millions of dollars and you know other people that lead huge organizations of incredibly motivated, uplifted people aren't. And I guess in the end, we have to kind of be clear about what, what really matters and it doesn't mean you just can spread the money everywhere evenly either, right? Because there are market forces at play. But it also doesn't mean that we can't uh, find other ways to respect and hold these people up. There are some things in this world that you can only see with the heart. And uh, one of those is just the goodness of other people. And a lot of times you won't be compensated on earth for that goodness. I guess that's why it's worth believing in a heaven where you might be compensated there. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We have all of this nostalgia for music, and I, I really wonder what it's what it's about. It, it seems like deep, deep down, um, there's we many of us. I mean, maybe of the older generation, we want to get back to that good old fashioned day when you could leave your front door open, uh, you know, have the screen on, maybe put some vinyls on, and 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 get back and and just enjoy listening to some great music. Or when you used to – like I used to go hang out at my grandparents' house and every – I think it was Sunday, we'd sit around the old uh, wood box television, like real nice wood furniture television set and we would watch Lawrence Welk. And we'd get to see a really nice variety show of dancing and champagne dreams, <laughs> bubbles everywhere. Ah. 
And I look at my kids and I, I, I think our earlier guest made a really excellent point that they're, um, they, they can look at these really incredible masterpieces, but it really is just like they're driving by a billboard. Oh, OK. Yeah, I saw that. Yep, saw that. Oh, had that experience. But I guess because we had fewer things going on, these things became more universal. They became more shared kind of collective events. And it might be telling us that there's something powerful in creating culture. And uh, personally, there's a lot I think we can do with our families. There's a lot we can do with our kids to create a feeling of culture like that. Kids want predictability. They want to know that we're going to have a certain, uh, you know, predictable schedule in our lives. We're going to have a family meeting um, once a week. We're going like with us. Our kids like to know that we're going to have a family prayer at the end of the day. Something, just something that tells them that. Everything's okay. We're all fine. And even though they kind of moan when you're like, hey, let's get together and have a family time, they, of course they're going to moan. That's what teenagers do. But they predictably get there and we then can have some great conversations. We can share some great stuff. So don't think just because, you know, life is moving on, great musicians are passing on. Um, that that this world isn't a great place. We just need to take the principles of things we used to do, like we need to sit around and have more talks. We need to have more family circles where we share more insight. We need to ask them to turn the the intervening technology off so that they can actually be present and start experiencing certain things and slowly but surely drip more and more opportunity, more culture, more connection into their lives. Family dinner is a great place to do that as well. So the research bears out that when you're having events like that, you're going to create stronger families, stronger kids, and that's the goal for all of us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, in today's uh, economy and world, it's a hard thing that we've all got to battle with this idea that we have to somehow, you know, go to work every day, balance our career and still progress and, and go, you know, make a difference in this world while at the same time trying to figure out how to take care of our family needs, our, our kids' needs. So here to speak with us today is the founder and CEO of WorkParent, a company that provides advice and solutions to working parents and the organizations that employ them. Daisy Wademan Dowling is um, is with us, and she also uh, is um, been involved in an article and part of an article that we talked about and read about on how working parents can feel less overwhelmed and more in control. You can find that on Harvard Business review.org. Daisy, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is, um, boy, oh boy, are we not all being pulled in 10 different directions? We love our kids to death and we love our careers. We want to make them work. And sometimes it seems like they don't always go together. Absolutely. It's one of the great challenges of modern adult life. There's 52 million Americans dealing with this challenge, going to work every day, trying to earn a living, keep their family stable and earn money for what's ahead uh, and, and do well at work and enjoy it. And then coming home and having children who need to be taken care of and wanting to have a great relationship within the family and with your kids. 
And those are two things that feel very distinct. They feel very separate. It's hard to figure out how to integrate those and to succeed at both on your own terms. Is it is this something that worries corporations? I mean, we we kind of we we get a sense sometimes that the corporation only kill, cares about just get your job done, just get your job done. But it seems like with your organization, you try to actually influence both the parents and the employers. Absolutely. I think this is something that's becoming top of mind for a lot of organizations and will continue to do so. So there's been a lot of press recently about organizations that are shifting their policies and their programs to provide longer parental leaves, for example. I think that's just one sign, one indication of some of the concern inside human resources organizations, inside senior executive suites, about the fact that so many of the people, again, just a huge number of Americans in this country, uh, people in this country, are grappling with this challenge. And we all know anybody who has handled a job, who's been focused on their career, and who has had or has now kids at home, knows how difficult it is to show up and be present when you've been up maybe all night with a kid who's sick or you're working to get your 10-year-old ready for a big test tomorrow, but you have a work deadline at the same time. Mm. We've all been there. We've all grappled with that. And I think that's becoming more top of mind for organizations. Working parenthood has really changed in the past 10 to 15 years, too. So this issue is becoming more present and more concerning. If you think about your own parents or even think about 20 years ago, what working parents had to go through, we didn't have smartphones. So this expectation of being on all the time, constantly reachable by your clients or your managers or your colleagues, wasn't there. The world was a different place. It was hard then to be a working parent, but the challenges even increased now and will likely continue to, which is why there's more focus on this. And I think that's exciting. I do too. I, I mean, especially because we, we also see more and more people stressed, more children even stressed. And I'm I'm sure when I'm stressed at work and overwhelmed thinking about home, not as much as getting done. What what can we do about it? I know you have great advice about uh, how we can feel less overwhelmed or less or more in control. What are some what are some pieces of advice that you give to struggling uh, parents? Absolutely, there's there are a couple of really powerful pieces of advice, and I should say before I describe them that all the advice that I give comes from other working parents. So I'm a working mother like everybody else. I like to joke that I founded this company because I wanted its services for me. <laughs> yeah. um, I've, I've made every mistake in the book, but everything that I advise is from the wisdom of other people who have been there and done that. Now, one of the, the great insights that I got about two years ago from a um, fellow working parent um, was the idea of being intentional in what you do. So if you're running an organization or a team within your company, you likely have a very fixed idea of what you want to get done this year. You have sales targets. You have things you want to complete by the end of 2018. Likewise, in other areas of your life, in your marriage, um, in your own health and wellness, you have a fixed point on the horizon that you want to go to. You want to have a long and healthy and strong marriage, for example, and you do certain things to get there. Well, it's very easy for working parents to get caught up in this constant treadmill. 
every day requires new fires to be put out. There's emergencies. Your kid is sick. There's a big, big deadline at work. Your regular caregiver can't make it that day. And you're constantly dealing with these sort of low-grade emergencies that just make you very stressed out and require all of your energy. When you talk to any working parent, they'll say, I feel like I'm just keeping my head above water. If you're intentional, if you can take a step back and think, what do I really want to accomplish in my working parenthood? That will help reduce your stress level and help you allocate your time towards what's important. So to give a particular example, let's say that I want to raise, I have two children, let's say I want to raise them to be healthy, economically self-sufficient adults who are really connected to their family heritage and to our family faith practices. Hmm. That's just an example. It could be a different statement for any one of us, right, yeah. depending on what's important and congruent to our values. Now, but if I have that statement, if I know that's where I want to go with working parenthood, I will make certain that I spend the time on the weekends to sit down and to teach my kids about money and use their allowance to help them figure out budgeting. I will make certain to tell them stories about our family's history. I will make certain to take them to Sunday school, for example. But I won't beat myself up about not making it to every soccer game. Because in the statement I just said, in, in my goal, having my kids become, you know, varsity level or Olympic level soccer players isn't part of it. Mm. It's great. It's great if I can go and cheer them on, but I'm not going to have that sense of constant emergency and of always falling down because I'll know where to put my time and I'll know that everything that I'm doing as a working parent is really congruent with my values. I love that. And then it's um, this, this statement there. Who, who was it? Nietzsche? Uh, somebody said it's easy to say no when you have a deeper yes burning inside. And this, so this statement is one that helps us really identify clearly what our yeses are. And we can't have everything can't be a yes. Right. It's, exactly. At some point. So if I know if it's going to be about, you know, raising healthy kids that are productive and healthy and connected to our faith system, then I've pretty much identified my yeses. Everything else um, is is maybe not as relevant to to our life. Exactly. It can be an occasional. It can be something yeah. you do if you you can get the the afternoon from work, go see the soccer game. But then it'll be something you enjoy. And all of a sudden you go from being very stressed and feeling crunched all the time to feeling like you're in the driver's seat, like you have control, like things are lining up in the direction you want them to go. And that everything else on top of that can be a benefit, a plus. And, and it makes it so I don't, like you said, I don't have to feel guilty about everything. I guess if there's going to be guilt, it would be guilty about not doing the things that I say are the imperatives. Exactly. You know, it's funny you say guilt. Guilt is a, an overwhelming emotion for so many working oh, parents. Yeah. And it comes from a good place. People who want to do well at work, they don't want to let their teammates down. They want to deliver great performance. They want to push ahead in their careers. They also want to be terrific mothers and fathers. They want to be present for their children. And those two things come into conflict, or they feel as if they come into conflict when you're traveling for business, for example. You might be doing a great thing for work, but you feel like you're letting the other side down. And you hear that again and again with working parents. So I, a lot of the tricks that I recommend are about how to not just shelve your sense of guilt, because that's impossible to just tell somebody, hey, stop feeling guilty, right? right? That typically doesn't work for any of us. But to give them some of the techniques that make them feel like, I'm not dropping the ball in either of these places. I'm doing okay, and I'm, I can be proud of what I'm doing, because both of those things are valid and important to me. 
What would you recommend as you're kind of putting this this uh, purpose statement together? Is there anything that's critical that that needs to be in that purpose? Yeah. So uh, the easiest way to think about your purpose is to think about the outcome, right? So flash forward 20 years, most of us have kids who are with us for 18 or so years. But once they're independent or somewhat independent, what do you want them to look like? What do you want them to be capable of? What do you want them to have taken with you out of your household and out of your work ethic also and brought with them into their own adulthood? And if you can flash forward like that, you'll begin to develop some of the adjectives and some of the descriptors that will let you put together that purpose statement. That's great. And then once we have the purpose statement, then your next point, I guess, is invest your time accordingly. Put your time into that statement. Exactly, exactly. There's there's a good saying in the business world um, and in the finance world where I've spent a good part of my career that you should invest your time like money. And I, I think it's a funny statement in some ways, but it's very apt here. Think about how your calendar aligns with what you want to get done. And there's a technique that I recommend to every working parent, um, regardless of how old their children are or where they are in this journey, that every Friday afternoon or whenever it's convenient for you, but where you can be a bit reflective and step back and look at the week as a whole or even a month as a whole, but preferably a week, look back over the week that you've spent and say to yourself by looking at your Outlook or Google Calendar, say to yourself, Were all the meetings and all the tasks and all the projects that I did this week, did they line up against what I want to accomplish as a working parent? How else could I have used my time? And you take that perspective, and then you flash forward to the week that's coming. You look ahead at the next Google Calendar week, and you say, hmm, okay, do I need to be at this meeting, or can I delegate that to somebody else? What's going to be important in my children's lives that I want to make time for this week? And does that mean that I'm going to have to readjust or work a little bit at home in the evening to get there? And it lets you call your calendar and really focus on the essentials. And again, lessen that sense of stress and to get more punch for the time that you're spending on things. Oh, man which is so desperately needed. Um, again, we're speaking with Daisy Wade-Mendowling, who uh, is the founder and CEO of WorkParent, which is a company that provides advice and solutions to working parents and to organizations that employ them. She also um, is a, a writer and has written for Harvard Business Review. So if you go there, you can just look up her name, Daisy Wade-Mendowling, and find many articles basically everything you can imagine about parenting and uh, and your work life. Um, Daisy, is it – I mean one of the things I know you talk about too is a lot of us make a to-do list, but you, you actually focus on the need to make a got-it-done got list, to actually focus on everything you've done. Yeah, so this is one of my favorite techniques to do with working parents when I'm coaching or I'm, when I'm teaching a group is I ask everybody to get out their to-do list, however they keep that, on their iPhone, on pieces of paper, on Post-it notes all over their office, and say, how do you feel about that? Now, there's very few working parents who don't feel totally overwhelmed by their to-do list, right? Because it goes from everything, help your child get ready for school the next day, um, you know, get lunch into the lunch boxes, uh, make certain I get to the soccer game if that's important to me. Um, but then all the things you have to go on at work, you know, get the budget numbers done, make the big presentation, follow up with so-and-so who didn't call me back. It's so totally overwhelming. And that's, it's a very daunting feeling. It's a very tiring feeling. And it, it just makes you feel like you're on your back foot all the time. Mm. Instead, 
get out a completely clean new sheet of paper, whether that's an actual sheet of paper or on an electronic device, and make a list of all the things you've accomplished in the past month, whether that's a work accomplishment, getting a big project across the line, coming in under budget on something that you um, had to do, you weren't sure you were able to, whatever you're proud of at work. And then also things at home. It could be something as simple as I ate dinner with my kids five nights out of five last week, right? Yeah. And when you look at that list, you'll realize, yes, I do have a daunting set of things that have yet to be done and that I need to focus on and do, and I don't want to drop those balls, but I'm doing pretty well, and I'm doing things that are important and things that I can be proud of. And all of a sudden, you can even see when I teach this in a classroom setting, you can even see people start to sit up a little bit straighter and see their body language change because they have a deep sense of satisfaction and of accomplishment, which is something that's very important over the long term. Because there is a real effect that uh, researchers talk about where we tend to only focus on what needs to be done and, and we tend to undermine or under evaluate or appreciate what we have done. Exactly, exactly. All of the research psychology shows that the human mind basically gets very stressed out and has a difficult time with things that aren't completed. If you think about where you like to devote your time, you like to be able to check things off your list and feel like, I've got it, it's done, it's in the rearview mirror already. But having things that are incomplete, that are yet ahead of you, just it's a little bit crazy making. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure the research psychologists would use that term, but I will. <laughs> no, I like it. I like it. It's a good term. Another thing that you bring up that oh, I thought was such a – it's just as a no-brainer brilliant idea is um, the the fact that we need more power outages. And sometimes, you know, if the power goes out, we all have to take a break to some degree. But you're saying schedule power outages where you're just going to be out of pocket, out of power. Absolutely. Everybody has to step off the fast treadmill at some point. And when I talk to working parents who are really stressed, who are at the edge it's usually because they feel like there's no off switch. They have to be on all the time. They're constantly going. They're exhausted. And the speed just keeps picking up further and further and further. What is really important, and I advocate in multiple different ways, including this idea of a powder out- outage, is the idea of giving yourself micro breaks. In an intense job, if you've got three kids at home, you're not going to be able to just push yourself back and say, you know what, I'm taking the day off and just going to spend the time on me. It's hard to even schedule vacations in the course of a year. Those things you don't necessarily have control over, right? They're big. Right. But you absolutely have control over the small. It might be as little as 15 minutes to just say, you know what, I'm going to put my iPhone or my uh, laptop into the drawer, close the drawer, and I'm going to dance the hokey pokey with my two toddlers Hmm. for the next 15 minutes. Or sit down and have a family meal together for half an hour. The world will keep going. You'll pick up immediately if you need to right after that 15 minutes or 30 minutes. But it will give you a really, really powerful sense of having reconnected with home, with your kids, of having unplugged, of being able to um, restock your own personal energies in a way. But at the same time, no work project will really, truly fall apart in those 15 minutes. Right. Right. Yeah. You're not going to... You're not going to lose half of what you think you're going to lose. Talk to us, Daisy, as we wrap this up. Um, If there's one thing that parents can do today, just the one thing that would make the biggest impact 
on really giving them a sense that they are more in control and and that would diminish the stress, what would you recommend that one thing be? Yeah. So one technique that I advise to everybody is the concept of a family meal. So you're at work all day. Your time is not your own. You have tons of pressures on you. You come home. You may have other pressures and things you have to do at home as well. But the idea, and it's related to this idea of being able to unplug a little bit, but of having a discipline, it doesn't have to be every single day. It doesn't have to be the same meal. It doesn't have to be a family dinner. But of having a routine where everybody, kids, adults in your home, come together and sit down to enjoy each other's company is really powerful. And the way to amp that power up even further is by doing things like putting your devices in a drawer so that you won't be bothered by them, by giving everybody at the meal a job so everybody contributes to the meal and they feel like they're part of it, they have some ownership yeah. in it, even if, even if that's your two-year-old putting napkins on the table, and that you then have some sort of structured conversation when you sit down. Everybody shares something that they're proud of that another member of the family has done, for example. Again, it might be 20 minutes, but being able to do that once a week, even if it's over a microwave pizza, yeah. will make you feel so much more satisfied as a working parent. Good stuff. Daisy Dowling, uh, we appreciate you. Daisy Wademan Dowling is her name. And if you go to Harvard Business Review, again, uh, a lot of wonderful articles about how to integrate your family life into your workplace. Um, and the one we've been talking about, how working parents can feel less overwhelmed and more in control powerful stuff. Up next, we're going to do a little Coach's Corner to continue this discussion about how to truly feel um, a sense of satisfaction in in how you're managing your family. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, love stronger and lead healthier lives. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, it's it's interesting to me with uh, having Daisy Dowling on because she's she's a big league consultant, right? And um, works with uh, organizations all over the place, trying to do what she can to help them build a healthier uh, organization, an organization that actually has um, kind of more integration into family life and um, and and just a healthier type of, of lifestyle. So I, I, part of what I found, and notice the last thing she said, one of the great things that every one of us could do better is simply just having a family meal. The research behind family meals, we talk about it on the show all of the time. It really is, it's it's unprecedented in the little bit of time that that one activity takes and the impact it has on uh, on your family long term, even to the impact of keeping your children more integrated, uh, healthier, um, less deviant behavior for families that are able to just string together a family meal. And again, I don't think it matters what you eat. I don't think it matters even necessarily how much time you make for it as much as that you sit down with your kids regularly. doesn't even have to be every single day. But if you could sit down regularly with your kids, have some time with them, and then engage a conversation with them, you will see that one thing pay huge dividends. And so if you're if you're discouraged because, oh, I can't keep up with it, I can't do it all, or 
you know, I don't get home until seven and my kids were really hungry, then figure out a way for them to get a snack, even a bigger snack right after school, and then have a little bit later dinner, just so you can sit down, turn off the technology and have that moment. The the researchers say it's it's essential, but more importantly, I think you'll find out your kids, your spouse, your family would say it's essential as well. And if all we could do is figure out a way to do that two or three times a month or a week, how cool would that be? How big of an impact could that have on the people you love? So again, simple little solutions. And one of the things I would really suggest as a kind of overarching principle to all of this is remember that just maybe focus on progress, not perfection. It doesn't need to be the perfect meal. It doesn't need to be just whole foods. It doesn't need to be anything that is keeping you from making that meal. It needs to be some progress in your lifestyle and in your life and and improving the way you live. I think a lot of us are so caught up in it, wanting it to be perfect, wanting it to be the perfect time, the perfect place. Nobody fights. We have topics to discuss when in reality, just simply making a tiny bit of progress would take us a very, very long way. Sometimes, too, that little tiny, tiny bit of progress might actually lead us to some momentum that would lead us to more progress. So instead of getting so hung up on it needing to be perfect, let's just get hung up on having a little bit of progress. You could even ask yourself, what's the least, the minimal amount of action or movement I could take today? What is the least, the smallest thing I could do today to start to make progress toward the goals that I want with my marriage and my family? What's the smallest thing I could do? And it might simply be get to, you know, get a a list for your shopping, for your food and groceries made. And you can do that while you're watching a show. But that might be all you have to do today is get the list made. And then tomorrow, what's what's the least, you know, the smallest activity I could do tomorrow to have the greatest impact? And if we would just slowly start making small incremental steps, I think what we'd end up finding is progress is being made. So it's easy. It really is easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to think that we aren't good enough. It's easy to compare ourselves to everyone else. And then it's easy to kind of wallow in our guilt and our lack of movement. Um, By the way, it's just as easy to also just do the easiest thing you can do today and let it take you to the next step. You know, once you get one step done, see if you can't ask the question again and get to a second step or a third step. Anyway, just a basic little uh, tool that I've been finding makes a huge difference in my own life in uh, also bringing me some peace of mind and a closeness to my family. little coach's corner for you, folks. Again, we can't force you to do it. We can just bring you the ideas. That's the goal of the show, to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, more and more prices of homes keep going up, and especially if you want a really nice, crazy, eclectic home. Yeah, this one's crazy. It's uh, known as the priciest home in America, most expensive home in America. Wow. It's in Los Angeles. It'll go on the market later this year. Nile uh, Niami 
the developer known for such epic real estate offerings as the 100 million Opus oh, in wow. Beverly Hills, recently yeah. uh, down downgraded to 77 million. So now it's a deal. Ooh, he, can't, he can't move the house hey, now. So folks, it's, that takes it to a whole other price level. Now yeah, yeah. I'm interested. It'll show up in all sorts of listings. Now he's working on his next project called The One. It's in Bel Air. Oh, wow. Uh, working on it for several years. The $500 million home, 105 square feet, Giga Mansion, as they're calling it. It's the size of two White Houses. Uh, will indeed likely be the only one of its kind, seeing as L.A. has tightened up building regulations since he started working on the uh, the home. Uh, the one is, as he said, made for the one. It's, it's for, for the, the one person the that one can afford person. it. Yeah. So he says... Uh, what well, it says reads the tagline of a promotional video for the house featuring a wealthy host with a red Ferrari hosting a party with many beautiful women. So this is the the uh, wow. the image he's presenting. Is, yeah. This is your house. This is what will happen in this house. You'll have a Ferrari and there'll be crazy parties. And, and you know. everybody would would be your friend. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah. I'm not buying it. No. So he says uh, most of his clients typically single men who have made millions or billions in tech, finance, or oil, are just normal dudes, normal dudes who he hopes aspire to own a home with walls and ceilings made out of aquariums full of jellyfish. The one also includes its own indoor-outdoor nightclub, four-lane bowling alley, 40-seat movie theater, four pools, including the largest indoor pool in California, panoramic views of the city, and a moat that surrounds the property. I've always wanted a moat. Yeah. You know, you can't not have a moat no and a two-bedroom two-home or two-bedroom two-bath 848 square uh, square foot home near silicon valley yeah in two days it sold in two days on the market bedroom for two million dollars oh it's 848 square feet but did it have a moat no Hmm. it had been listed at one at 1.4 million so I'll it just, sold for two thousand per two thousand three hundred fifty eight dollars per square foot. I'll just keep waiting and save up for the moat. Yeah, I think I'm just going to buy a small house. Crazy, crazy numbers. Hey, uh, so much more straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. <laughs> 